Section 18 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 6, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Elizabeth, Chapter 5, Part 4. This summer the feuds between Sussex and Leicester ran so high on the subject of Her Majesty's marriage that neither of them ventured abroad without a retinue of armed followers. Sussex, whose mother was a Howard, was the kinsman of the queen, and his high sense of honor rendered him jealous of the construction that was placed on her intimacy with her master of the horse, combined with her reluctance to marry. He was urgent with her to espouse the Archduke Charles, and with him were banded all the Howard lineage and Lord Hunsdon, her maternal relatives. Cecil, her premier, went with them as far as his cautious nature would permit, in june there was an attempt to shake his credit with the queen and he has noted briefly and without comment the following incidents in his diary june fifteen sixty six full charts a fool was suborned to speak slanderously of me at greenwich to the queen's majesty for which he was committed to bridewell sixteenth a discord between the earls of leicester and sussex at greenwich there appeased by her majesty Twenty-first, accord between the earls of Sussex and Leicester before Her Majesty at Greenwich. They were reconciled after the fashion of persons, who are reluctantly bound over to keep the peace, for their hatred was deadly and unquenchable. The Queen went soon after in progress into Northamptonshire and to Woodstock. On the 31st of August, she paid a long-promised visit to the University of Oxford, of which Leicester had been elected Chancellor she was received at walvicote by the earl of leicester and a deputation of doctors and heads of colleges in their scarlet gowns and hoods the staffs of the superior beetles were delivered to her by the chancellor and restored again mr roger marbeck the orator of the university made an elegant speech to her majesty who was graciously pleased to offer her hand to be kissed by the orator and doctors when Dr. Humphreys, the leader of the Puritan party, drew near, in his turn, to perform that homage to his liege lady, she said to him with a smile, Mr. Doctor, that loose gown becomes you well. I wonder your notions should be so narrow. About a mile from the town, Her Majesty was met and welcomed by the mayor and corporation. The mayor surrendered his mace into her hands, which she returned, and he presented to her, in the name of the city, a silver cup double gilt in which was forty pounds of old gold she entered at the north gate called brocardo from which place to christ church hall the university was ranged in order according to their degrees and each order presented her majesty with latin verses and orations the scholars kneeling as she passed cried vivat regina and she with joyous countenance responded gratius ego when she came to carfax an oration was made to her in Greek by Mr. Lawrence, to which she made a suitable reply in the same language. A canopy was borne over her by four senior doctors as she entered the church. On the 2nd of September, Her Majesty heard the first half of an English play called Palamon and Arcite, which had such tragical success, observes Old Stowe, as was lamentable, three persons being killed by the fall of a wall and part of the staircase, on account of the overpressure of the crowd, which the queen understanding was much concerned, and sent her own surgeon to help those, 
who were now past remedy on the fourth of september the queen heard the remainder of palamon and arcite to her great content in the common hall of christ college when it was ended she who well knew the art of pleasing and rarely omitted those gracious courtesies which cost a sovereign nothing but are precious beyond description to those to whom they were vouchsafed sent for the author and gave him thanks for the pleasure she had received with promises of reward and before her whole court condescended thus to prattle to him of the characters which had afforded her two nights entertainment in the hall by palamon said her majesty i warrant he dallied not in love being in love indeed by arcite he was a right martial knight having a swarth countenance and a manly face by tricotio god's pity what a knave it is by pyrithus his throwing st edward's rich cloak into the funeral fire which a stander-by would have stayed by the arm with an oath this circumstance appears to have amused elizabeth exceedingly for it seems that the youthful part of the audience being new to the excitement of dramatic entertainments took some of the most lively incidents in the play for reality without pausing to reflect on the absurdity of a pagan knight of the court of theseus being in possession of the cloak of the royal anglo-saxon saint it is however certain that the fair amelia whose part was enacted by a handsome boy of fourteen appeared on that occasion not only in the costume but the veritable array of the recently defunct majesty of england queen mary as we find from the following item in one of the wardrobe books of queen elizabeth there was occupied and worn at oxford in a play before her majesty certain of the apparel that was late queen mary's at what time there was lost one forequarter of a gown without sleeves of purple velvet with satin ground etc notwithstanding the abstraction of so important a portion of the royal gabardine of her sister and predecessor with which the roguish representative of the athenian princess had doubtless guaranteed himself for his trouble queen elizabeth in token of her approbation of his performance gave him eight pounds in gold in the same play was introduced the cry of hounds on the train of a fox in theseus's hunting party which being imitated with good effect not on the stage but the quadrangle of the college the young scholars standing in the windows were so greatly excited that they cried out there there he's caught he's caught oh excellent cried the queen merrily from her box these boys in very troth are ready to leap out of the windows to follow the hounds on the fifth of september were disputations in physic and divinity in st mary's church from two o'clock until seven before the queen at which time dr westfalling prolonged his oration to so unreasonable a length that her majesty who intended herself to speak in the evening sent word to him to make an end of his discourse without delay the doctor having possession of the public ear paid no heed to the royal mandate but held forth for half an hour more to the infinite indignation of the queen who was not only especially bored by his interminable prosing but prevented from making the learned display she herself meditated having been earnestly solicited to speak by the spanish ambassador who was present which she had promised to do when the disputations were over it was so late before dr westfalling concluded his harangue that her majesty was compelled to put off her own speech till the next morning she sent an angry message to westfalling inquiring 
how he durst presume to go on with his discourse to so unreasonable a length after she had sent her commands to him to bring it briefly to a close the learned doctor replied with great humility that having committed it all to memory he found it impossible to omit any part in order to shorten it lest he should put himself so entirely out of cue that he should forget all the rest and so be brought to shame before the university and court her majesty laughed heartily when she understood the parrot-like manner in which the poor doctor had learned his theme so that he feared to leave out one sentence for fear of forgetting the rest on the following morning she made her own oration in latin before the whole university to the great comfort and delectation of them all but in the midst of it observing her secretary of state cecil standing on his lame feet she broke off by ordering one of her attendants to bring him a stool and when she had seen him conveniently seated she resumed her oration and went on to the end as fluently as if she had not interrupted herself this it is supposed she intended as a hint to westfalling on her superior powers of eloquence and memory her majesty was feasted eulogized and entertained at oxford for seven successive days on the last the commissary and proctors presented her majesty in the name of the whole university with six pair of very fine gloves and to the nobles and officers of her household some two pair and others one which were thankfully accepted after dinner a farewell oration was addressed to her majesty in christ church and the very walls of oxford were papered with verses in honor of her visit she was conducted by the mayor aldermen and heads of colleges as far as shotover hill where the earl of leicester informed her their jurisdiction ended and mr roger marbeck made a final oration to her majesty on the glories to which learning was likely to arrive under so erudite a sovereign elizabeth listened with pleasure returned a gracious answer and looking back on oxford with all possible marks of tenderness and affection bade them farewell from oxford she proceeded to rycote the seat of sir henry norris and then returned to london to await the opening of the parliament which after six lengthened prorogations she had reluctantly summoned to meet for the purpose of replenishing her empty exchequer the birth of the son of the queen of scots had strengthened the party of those who were desirous of seeing the succession settled on the hereditary claimants who would ultimately unite the crowns of england and scotland in peace and prosperity on the other hand the protestant community dreading a renewal of persecution if the sceptre passed into the hands of a catholic sovereign desired the marriage of elizabeth in the hopes of continuing under monarchs of her own immediate lineage when the parliament met both parties united in addressing her majesty on the two subjects most distasteful to her her marriage and the settlement of the royal succession she heard them with fierce impatience and like a true daughter of henry the eighth bade them attend to their own duties and she would perform hers they were of a different spirit from the men who had crouched to her father's bad passions and ill manners for they exerted the independence of the national senate by refusing to grant the supplies on the grounds that her majesty had not performed the conditions on which the last were given and passed a vote that nothing of the kind should be done till she thought proper to accede to the wishes of the nation by settling the succession a deputation of twenty peers addressed the queen on the evils resulting from her silence she answered haughtily 
that she did not choose that her grave should be dug while she was yet alive, that the commons had acted like rebels, and treated her as they durst not have treated her father. She added with infinite scorn, that the lords might pass a similar vote if they pleased, but their votes were but empty breath without her royal assent. She called them, hair-brained politicians, unfit to decide on such matters, and referred herself to a committee of six grave and discreet counsellors of her own choosing, by whose advice, she said, she intended to be guided. This intemperate and despotic language did not suit the temper of the times, and was followed by the first serious opposition and censure of the conduct of the sovereign that had been heard for centuries in the National Senate, Leicester, provoked probably at the determination of the queen not to risk bestowing a share in her power and privileges on a consort, took a leading part in this debate, which so offended her that she forbade him and the Earl of Pembroke her presence. Party recriminations ran high on this subject. Leicester had avenged the opposition of Cecil to his marriage with their sovereign, by causing it to be generally circulated that the jealousy of the premier was the real obstacle which deterred her majesty from fulfilling the wishes of her people and great ill-will was expressed to the minister on this account and public curses were bestowed on hewick the queen's physician for having said something in his professional character which had deterred her majesty from matrimony on the twenty seventh of october a general petition was addressed to her majesty by both houses of parliament entreating her either to choose a consort or name a successor elizabeth assured them that she had not bound herself by any vow of celibacy never to trade as she termed it in that kind of life called marriage she acknowledged that she thought it best for private women but as a prince she endeavoured to bend her mind to it and as for the matter of the succession she promised that they should have the benefit of her prayers the commons were not content with this oracular declaration and passed a vote that the bill for the supplies should be incorporated with a bill for the settlement of the succession the queen was exasperated at this novel step in the provision of ways and means and when it was communicated to her by a deputation from the lower house she hastily scribbled at the foot of the address her sentiments on the occasion which according to a notation in cipher added by sir william cecil she repeated by way of answer to mr speaker and thirty members of the house of commons who brought up the unlucky address november fourteenth fifteen sixty six it is to be hoped her speech was more perspicuous than her notes of it or little could the commons learn further than that their liege lady was in a rage i know no reason why my private answers to the realm should serve for prologue to a subsidy vote neither yet do i understand why such audacity should be used to make without my license an act of my words are my words like lawyers books which nowadays go to the wire drawers to make subtle doings more plain is there no hold of my speech without an act to compel me to confirm shall my princely consent be turned to strengthen my words that be not of themselves substantives say no more at this time but if these fellows we fear she meant the members of the house of commons by this irreverent word fellows were well answered and paid with lawful coin there would be no fewer counterfeits among them the commons regarded this intimation as a breach of their privileges and allowed the bill for the supplies 
that business to which alone her majesty was desirous they should direct their attention to remain unnoticed they maintained with unwonted independence that since the queen would not marry she ought to be compelled to name her successor and that her refusing to do so proceeded from feelings which could only be entertained by weak princes and faint-hearted women elizabeth was mortified at this language but felt that she reigned solely by the will and affections of her own people whose representatives she had insulted france spain scotland rome were ready to unite against her if she took one false step and she was without money it was not in her temper to retract but she well knew how to cajole and sending for thirty members from each house she assured them of her loving affection and desire to do all that her subjects will required and that understanding that the house was willing to grant her an extra subsidy if she would declare her successor she could only say that half would content her as she considered that money in her subjects purses was as good as in her own exchequer this popular sentiment obtained from the parliament the really ample grant of one fifteenth and one tenth from the people and four shillings in the pound from the clergy unfettered by any conditions whatsoever when elizabeth had gained this point she dismissed her parliament without delay in a half pathetic half vituperative speech from the throne observing in the commencement of her harangue that although her lord keeper bacon had addressed them she remembered that a prince's own words bore more weight with them than those that were spoken by her command she complained bitterly of the dissimulation she had found among them when she was herself all plainness as for her successor she said they might perhaps have a wiser or more learned to reign over them but one more careful for their weal they could not have but whether she ever lived to meet them again or whoever it might be she bade them beware how they again try their prince's patience as they had done hers and now to conclude said her majesty not meaning to make a lent of christmas the most part of you may assure yourselves that you depart in your prince's grace at the very period of this stormy excitement elizabeth was secretly amusing herself with the almost exploded chimeras of alchemy for cecil in his diary has noted that in january fifteen sixty seven cornelius lenoy a dutchman was committed to the tower for abusing the queen's majesty and promising to make the elixir this impostor had been permitted to have his laboratory at somerset house where he had deceived many by promising to convert any metal into gold to the queen a more flattering delusion had been held forth even the draught of perpetual life and youth and her strong intellect had been duped into a persuasion that it was in the power of a foreign empiric to confer the boon of immortality upon her the particulars of this transaction would doubtless afford a curious page in the personal history of the mighty elizabeth that she was a believer in the occult sciences and an encourager of those who practiced the forbidden arts of divination and transmutation no one who has read the diary of her pet conjurer dr d can doubt it is probable that he was an instrument used by her to practice on the credulity of other princes and that through his agency she was able to penetrate into many secret plots and associations in her own realm but she placed apparently an absurd reliance on his predictions herself she even condescended with her whole court and privy council to visit him one day at mortlake 
when it was her gracious intention to have examined his library and entered into further conference but understanding that his wife had only been buried four hours she contented herself with a peep into his magic mirror which he brought to her her majesty says d being taken down from her horse by the earl of leicester master of the horse at the church wall at mortlake did see some of the properties of that glass to her majesty's great contentment and delight a strange sight in sooth it must have been for the good people of mortlake who had witnessed in the morning the interment of the wizard's wife in the churchyard to behold in the afternoon the maiden majesty of england holding conference with the occult widower under the same church wall on the flowery margin of the thames nay more alighting from her stately palfrey to read a forbidden page of futurity in the dim depths of his wondrous mirror ebon framed and in shape and size resembling some antique hand screen while her gay and ambitious master of the horse scarcely refrained perchance from compelling the oracle to reflect his own handsome face to the royal eye as that of the man whom the fates had decided it was her destiny to wed many however were the secret consultations d held with queen elizabeth at windsor and richmond and even at whitehall and when she passed that way she honored him with a special greeting september seventeenth says he the queen's majesty came from richmond in her coach the higher way of mortlake field and when she came right against the church she turned down towards my house and when she was against my garden in the field she stood there a good while and then came into the street at the great gate of the field where espying me at my door making obeisances to her majesty she beckoned me to come to her coach side she very speedily pulled off her glove and gave me her hand to kiss and to be short asked me to resort to her court and to give her to wheat or to know when i came there he had also flattered elizabeth with promises of perennial youth and beauty from his anticipated discovery of the elixir of life and the prospect of unbounded wealth as soon as he should have arrived at the power of bringing to practical purpose his secret of transmuting the baser metals into gold after years of false but not fruitless trickery he professed to have arrived at the point of projection having cut a piece of metal out of a brass warming pan and merely heating it by the fire and pouring on it a portion of his elixir converted it into pure silver he is said to have sent the warming pan with the piece of silver to the queen that she might see with her own eyes the miracle and be convinced that they were the veritable parts that had been severed from each other by the exact manner in which they corresponded after the transmutation had been effected his frequent impositions on the judgment of the queen did not cure her of the partiality with which she regarded him and after a long residence on the continent she wooed him to return to england which he did travelling with three coaches each with four horses in state little inferior to that of an ambassador a guard of soldiers was sent to defend him from molestation or plunder on the road immediately on his arrival he had an audience with the queen at richmond by whom he was most graciously received she issued her especial orders that he should do what he liked in chemistry and philosophy and that no one should on any account interrupt him he held two livings in the church through the patronage of his royal mistress though he was suspected by her loyal lieges of being in direct correspondence and friendship 
with the powers of evil. Elizabeth finally bestowed upon him the chancellorship of St. Paul's Cathedral. The very accurate accounts that were kept by the officers of Elizabeth's wardrobe of every article of royal dress and decorations are evidenced by the following amusing entry from the highly curious manuscript pertaining to that department, to which we have referred before. Lost from Her Majesty's back, the 17th of January, Anno Decem Regina Elizabeth, at Westminster, one aglet of gold enamel blue, set upon a gown of purple velvet, the ground satin, the gown set all over with aglets of two sorts, the aglet which is lost being of the bigger sort. Memoria, that the 18th of April, Anno Octo Regina Elizabeth, her majesty wore a hat having a band of gold enameled with knots, and set with twelve small rubies or garnets, at which time one of the said rubies was lost. Item, lost from her majesty's back at Wellington, the 16th of July, one aglet of gold enameled white. Item, one pearl and tassel of gold being lost from her majesty's back, off the French gown of black satin, the 15th day of July at Greenwich. These aglets were ornamental loops, or eyelets, of goldsmith's work, with which Elizabeth's robes appear to have been thickly besprinkled. They were movable, and changed from one dress to another, according to pleasure, and she had various sets of them of different colors and patterns. Some gold enameled white, some blue, others purple, and some enriched with pearls and gems. Manifold are the entries in the said wardrobe book, of the losses her majesty sustained in these decorations. In one instance, the record is entered in regal style. Item, lost from the face of a gown, in our wearing the same at Chanus, July, anno duo decem, one pair of small aglets, enamel blue, parcel of a hundred and eighty-three pair. The inference of the reader would naturally be, that her majesty's yeoman of the robes, must have performed their duties very negligently to allow such insecure stitching to be used in her service but we remember to have seen in a contemporary manuscript that when the queen dined in public on one of her progresses some of those that stood about her cut aglets from her majesty's dress and that not out of a pilfering disposition but from feelings of loyal enthusiasm for the sake of possessing something that had been worn by their adored liege lady her losses of jewelry were not confined to aglets. At Oatlands, in the month of June, she was minus four buttons of gold, enameled white and blue, and at Hampton Court, in the month of January, in the following year, four pair of pomander buttons. Item, lost from Her Majesty's back, the 25th of December, Anno Quindecum, one tassel and one middle piece of gold from a knotted button, containing three pearls, in depiche lost from her majesty's back seventeenth of november one eft of gold pope's sarcastic lines on the habit of mind of some females who seem to employ equal depth of stratagem on matters of trifling import as on the government of a state never sure received completer historical illustration than when the acute heads of elizabeth and cecil plotted together to obtain surreptitiously the services of a tailor employed by the queen regent of france catherine de medicis the gout with which the prime minister of england enters into this intrigue rather authenticates the statement of parsons the jesuit that he was the son of an operative tailor being in the same predicament with pepys 
whose affectionate instincts towards his paternal craft have more recently diverted all the world the queen's majesty wrote cecil to sir henry norris the ambassador at paris would fain have a tailor that had skill to make her apparel both after the italian and french manner and she thinketh that you might use some means to obtain some one that serveth the french queen without mentioning any manner of request in our queen's majesty's name first caused your lady to get such a one the gist of the intrigue was that the tailor was to be enticed into england by the agency of lady norris without catherine de medici's knowing the matter lest that queen should formally offer the services of the man of stitch and thus entail a political obligation on the majesty of england the time and talents of this profound statesman were also employed by elizabeth in devising a truly ludicrous proclamation to prevent unskilful painters gravers and printers from doing injustice to the goodly lineaments of her gracious countenance by presuming to attempt portraitures of her till some cunning person should have made such a perfect representation as might serve for a pattern meet to be followed but even when the state pattern was provided none were allowed to copy it but persons of understanding nor even such as were unless duly authorized by a license as for the ill-favoured portraits of her majesty that had already been rashly perpetrated they were absolutely prohibited as contraband articles and were not permitted to be exposed for sale till such should be reformed as were reformable elizabeth though drawing is said to have been one of her accomplishments was so little acquainted with the principles of art that she objected to allow any shades to be used by her court painter as she considered all dark tints injurious to the fairness and smoothness of complexion and contour hence the chinese flatness and insipidity which is generally the prevailing characteristic of her portraits End of section 18.